0: Welcome to another episode of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm your host, Jack Llewellyn. Thank you for joining. This is the 25th episode of this podcast, and I'll be honest, when I started this a few months ago, I didn't really see a path towards 25, um, but I've been thrilled with what we've done so far. I think we've... uh, shed some light on some interesting issues. We've looked at things in a different way. We started off saying that we wanted to apply some strict intellectual rigor to the analysis of the Camarena case, to those who have tried to profit off the Camarena case, and and other issues surrounding the cartels and the drug trade in Mexico. Um. So I'm happy with the 25 that we've done. Looking forward to the next 25 and the 25 after that. I'm happy to report that we get bigger every week. People keep joining, uh, which I certainly appreciate. So everyone who's listened in, liked it, and come back. Thank you. Everyone who's listened in, liked it, and made a recommendation to somebody else. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We're going to keep trying to do good work. I appreciate everyone's comments. Um, I've received several comments from viewers, or listeners, all of whom have been uh, very helpful and very nice and generous with their their thoughts and their time. And that's also appreciated. I also want to thank Art Fontes for joining us last week to talk about some issues uh, currently going on in Mexico. We're going to have some more guests uh, in the next few weeks. We'll try to go a little bit, you know, back and forth, not necessarily week after week, but to intersperse our discussions of the case um, and, uh, you know, the continued investigations into the Camarena case and some of the offshoots of it with some more discussions from some experts in in the field and things. So uh, look forward to to those coming up. All right. What are we going to do today? First of all, we're going to start talking um, a little bit about the Caro Quintero extradition situation, what's going on there, and specifically about a couple of things that have happened recently that may or may not be related to Caro Quintero and his potential extradition. Then we're going to look at what are facts, and more importantly, what are facts that can support a hypothesis? What are facts that are sufficient to support a theory? And by contrast, what are irrelevant facts or inconsequential facts or facts that simply are not and cannot be sufficient to support a hypothesis, or a theory, or a story, or a docu-series. And we're going to have some real-life examples of that. Uh, We're going to talk about a few specific uh, assertions of fact and why they're wrong. And then we're going to look at the end about how that relates to the last arc and the documentary or the docu-series, that was presented by Amazon Prime. All right, let's go back to Caro Quintero. Again, um, almost nothing new to report with respect to the extradition process. I wouldn't expect that we will see any significant movement in the very near future, though you never know. But something interesting did happen uh, a few weeks ago that we didn't get a chance to talk about, but I think is very important. So we want to talk about a gentleman by the name of Said Emilio Quintero Navidad, who goes by the moniker El Cadete. In 2016, 2017, uh, and, and probably going as far back as 2014 or so, Quintero Navidad was reported to be the head of the Beltran Leyva organization in Sonora. He was also reported to be the main person responsible for the trafficking of heroin and uh, cocaine through Sonora into the United States via Arizona. So a major kingpin, in fact, in um, August of 2014, he was listed by the United States um, as a kingpin and a major trafficker, he got on the blacklist, uh, et cetera. So, a significant player in the uh, in the drug trade. He also happens to be Rafael Caro Quintero's cousin. In October of 2017. Quintero Navidad gets um, indicted on three counts in federal court in California, in San Diego. October 2017, he surrenders. At least that's what it appears at the San Ysidro Port of Entry. Surrenders and... Upon his surrender, there becomes some speculation. What the heck exactly is going on here? Why did he surrender, et cetera? If you remember, remember when Annabelle Hernandez had an interview with Caro Quintero, uh, ostensibly up in the mountains, and he was like in a little shack and they had their conversation. She specifically asked him about, uh, about, uh, his cousin Quintero Navidad and said, you know, Hey, did, did he betray you? And Carl kind of, you know, shuffled his, his side and said, no, 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 everything's good, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that Ms. Hernandez brought up Quintero Navidad says something. So we fast forward from his arrest and October of 2017 January 2018, he pleads guilty to three counts. He pleads guilty to conspiracy to distribute heroin and cocaine for importation, conspiracy to import heroin and cocaine, and conspiracy to launder money. He admits to being a leader and an organizer of the BLO, and he agrees to forfeit $1 million in drug proceeds. Then, and this is where it gets interesting. August 31 of this year, okay, so just a few weeks ago, he gets resentenced in federal court in San Diego to time served, which with all of his credits and his time amounts to about 69 months. Five years, nine months, more or less. And as of that sentence, he's free. His time is served. Now, he's a Mexican citizen, so he could be deported upon his release. I am told, I can't vouch for this um, myself, but I can, can repeat what I was told, which is that as of yesterday, he remains at the Metropolitan Detention Center in San Diego. So if you want to speculate, you've got a drug dealer, a drug lord, you know, somebody with some power who gave himself up, gave himself up in a way that led to a great deal of speculation about whether or not he was, you know, telling secrets about the BLO, About the Sinaloa cartel, and more importantly, about his cousin Rafael Caro Quintero. And then, you suddenly have him uh, having his sentence be to time serve five and a half years for everything that he was alleged to have done. It's hard not to speculate a little bit. You know, does the government think that Caro Quintero is going to be indicted or be extradited? Do they want? Uh, Quintero Navidad as a as a witness is that what's happening here? Um, I think we have to be very 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 careful about too much speculation and leaping to too many conclusions from too few facts. Uh, you know, the government could just be doing its due diligence, and uh, you know they really don't know anything more about whether or not Caro is going to be extradited. Could be totally unrelated. Could have been something that was in the works for a long time. At this point, we simply don't know. Um, I've reached out to some people to try and get some more information. And if we get some, you will know shortly after I do. But I think it's interesting and definitely something worth keeping uh, track of. The other interesting thing that happened uh, since our last discussion uh, happened yesterday. And Miguel Angel Felix Gardo. 76 years old, in bad health, been in prison for the better part of 30 years, uh, had recently been in the hospital, according to Mexican press reports. He was granted home arrest by a district judge in Mexico. Now, prosecutions has said that they um, might appeal that release or, or that sentence the the changed circumstances of his incarceration. Uh, you know, the president in the past has said that he wouldn't mind seeing Felix get house arrest because he didn't want to see him d- die in jail or suffer. We've talked in the past about the fact that it was a little bit, uh, there was some incongruity with the fact that Ernesto Fonseca had been on house release for several years that at the time we were having the discussion, Kyle Kantaro wasn't in jail, and that Felix Garda was the, uh, the one who was still in jail and maybe had suffered the most of the three when, in my mind, and as we've discussed at length, of the three, he probably had the least to do with anything related to the kidnapping, torture, interrogation, or murder of Agent Camarena, if he had anything to do with it, so the fact that uh, he was granted house arrest, given his health, given uh, you know the time that he served, etc, doesn't come as a huge surprise. Now, what does that mean for our knowledge base um, for the prosecutions? Probably nothing in my mind. Um and I say probably nothing because I don't think that there's any reason to believe that Felix is suddenly going to start talking to reporters, gonna start talking to uh the Mexican government, the US government, and divulging, you know, facts about what happened in nineteen eighty-five that that haven't come out before. Uh I, I just don't see that for a whole variety of reasons could be totally wrong. Remember I'm the guy who said that Caro Quintero wasn't likely to be picked up anytime soon. I think I said that a week before he he was actually picked up. So we don't really know, but it is interesting. Uh and and you can assume that there's not a great deal of love loss between Felix Gardo and Cairo Cantero. How does that play out if at all? I don't know. Um and it may well be, frankly, that um Felix's health is much worse than we even know, and there is a reason or a desire to have him die at home as opposed to in prison. Don't know. Again, speculating, but again, I don't think that his arrest is likely to increase our knowledge base of what actually happened in February of 1985 dramatically. Okay, that's where we're at. Now, I'm going to let you all know something else that's coming up. So starting on Saturday, September 24th, and this you're going to hear about this again, but starting on Saturday, September 24th, we're going to send out a newsletter. Every Saturday morning, you're going to get uh, a, a one-page newsletter blast that really is just going to be what are the – top 10 things or so that have happened the week before relating to the Camarena case, the Mexican cartels, etc., cetera. And high level, boom, boom, boom. But you're going to be able to see what's going on. So we're going to continue to talk about Rafael Caracantero, talk about his potential extradition. We'll talk about things surrounding that. But there's a lot else going on in relationship to the cartels that I think is of interest, but we're not going to spend as much time on it in our podcast, but at least it'll get highlighted um, in the newsletter. And as an example, did you know last week, uh, Eric Valencia Salazar, L85, who was one of the co-founders of the CJNG, was captured in Jalisco. Okay, There's lots of little stuff like that that comes up, I know on a regular basis, so we're going to blast those these out uh, again every Saturday morning. You'll get them in your your inbox, uh, so be looking for that. All right, let's move to our discussion about facts. Okay, and we live in a world where. I think the term fact has become trivialized, not only in the sense that, you know, we have politicians and supporters of politicians who talk about alternative facts um, that, you know, use the word facts in a loose, non-precise manner. And we're going to try to avoid that today. So let's talk about the definition of facts. So the simple definition, if you look it up in any dictionary, the simple definition is a fact is something that actually exists. Reality, truth, something known to exist or to have happened. Okay. A more nuanced definition that is critical for us is a fact is a truth known by actual experience or observation. I'm going to say that again. A fact is a truth known by actual experience or observation. We're going to talk about that very specifically. And that linkage between actual experience and observation and a fact. Where do we get messed up with facts? We get um, misled. We get led astray by the word facts when it's used in a counterintuitive way. So a good example that was in dictionary.com on on the web um, is a fact can be something said to be true or that was supposed to have happened. And the example they give is fascinating. The example they give is, quote, the facts given by the witness are highly questionable. And that's going to be critical for us when we start talking about Godoy and Lopez and Hector Berea and the things that they're saying, the things that they are calling facts. There are places on the web where you can talk, you know, hear a lot of speculation. you know, Reddit has some, some places, there's other discussion boards about cartels, about Camarena, about the CIA, etc. They're all over the place. And one of the things that gets mistaken a lot, a lot, is this idea of if something is reported, is it a fact? And here's a really Here's an example I want to I, I want to use. So there is a DEA six report that I'm looking at right now. That is dated February 13, 1990, and in it, a witness, a confidential informant. It, it was debriefed by Agents Wayne Schmidt and Hector Breyes, And the ostensible subject matter of um, this debriefing was um, the murder of Manuel Buendia. We've talked about Buendia, who was the reporter who was murdered, Several, several months prior to Camarena. And uh Boreas and others have tried to provide a linkage between those two events. And we're going to talk about that in more detail in a little bit. But you go way to the back of this thing, um, there is a... um Go back, you're on page six of seven. And there's a discussion that somebody in 1990 um, says that they had been told that there was a ranch in the uh, Veracruz area that was being used by the CIA. Okay, we're not going to talk about Uh, all the details, because it's really not that important. But 1990, interviewing a witness who says, I was told by somebody else that there was a ranch in Veracruz and that it was being used by the CIA. What, What do people do with that information? You can find people on the web who say... Aha, this shows that the government was aware of the activities of the Contras and the CIA on Rancho Veracruz, which was owned by Rafael Caro Quintero. And nothing could be further from the truth. A couple of things you have to keep in mind when you're looking at DEA 6 reports. Number one, generally speaking, with very rare exceptions, very rare, the agent taking down the information in the DEA 6 report is not verifying or standing by the accuracy of the statement. Let me give you two different examples. If I said to a DEA agent, who's going to then record this in DA 6, that I was on the grassy knoll in November 1963. I would hope that that didn't get put into the da 6 report because I wasn't born in November of 1963. I had about two and a half more weeks of gestation. Okay. But if I said that I was on the grassy knoll 20 years afterwards, would that be a fact? Well, the fact is that I said it. It's getting reported in the DEA-6, but that doesn't mean that it's accurate. The mere fact that a confidential informant or a witness says something in a DEA-6 doesn't mean that it's accurate. It just means that somebody said that. And again, you got to look at the timing. You got, remember, Hector Boreas has no contemporaneous information. He wasn't in Mexico in 1985. He wasn't in Mexico in 1986. He didn't do an investigation in February of 1985 in Guadalajara. He didn't meet with witnesses regarding that case in 1985. He doesn't come along for years afterwards. So the fact that we're talking, he then is talking to a witness in 1990 says nothing, nothing about what the government knew or didn't know in 1984 and 1985, which is the whole point to begin with. Let me make this point a different way, too. There's a book that I've mentioned a few times, and if you um, have read my book, you know that I discuss it in there, and it's called "Eclipse of the Assassin," of uh, the Assassins. Um, it's written by Russell and Sylvia Bartley, um, who are husband and wife. Uh, Russell is a um, former professor at the University of Wisconsin uh, in Milwaukee. Uh, Sylvia is a historian. Uh, she worked for a um, as a photojournalist in Mexico. All right, they wrote a book that started off about the Dia case, okay, um, and they try to make a linkage between the CIA and Dia's assassination, etc. There comes a point in the book when, in my opinion, and again. Um, I, you know, the, the amount of research and work that went into the book is extraordinary. I disagree with a lot of their conclusions. Frankly, they take some pot shots at people that I consider mentors and friends that I don't agree with. Um, but a lot of work went into it, not disparaging that, but they come to some conclusions that I think are just wrong, but more importantly, wrong because of what they rely upon. And that's where we get back to this discussion of facts. So, they end up, the the Bartleys, end up saying, basically, they buy Hector's um, story hook, line, and sinker. Okay, that there was a linkage between Buendia and Camarena, and that Camarena was murdered by the CIA, etc. So, on page three ninety four of their book, on a in, in a chapter titled "Parsing the Evidence," which I think is is um, a little bit ironic, the the authors say this. The evidence for U.S. complicity in that murder is circumstantial and informant-based. With a judicious application of Occam's razor, however, it is also persuasive. Here again, we note a number of relevant imperial facts. Okay? So, with all due respect to William of Ockham, who's rolling in, in his grave right now, they say, hey, if we put all these facts together, we have a persuasive case. But let's talk about what some of these empirical facts that they say. Um, first of all, they say, in number two, they list eight things, and we'll just go through a couple of them. They say that links between the murders of Manuel Buendia and Enrique Camarena, have been established by agents and officials of the U.S. government. Uh, I think that's one agent, one official. That's Hector Boreas and Hector Boreas only. Um, Also goes on to say, at the time of the Buendia assassination... The CIA had a deep cover agent, Lawrence Victor Harrison, embedded in Mexico's national security apparatus. Harrison knew about the planned attack on Bondia a month before it was carried out. What's the source for that? Lawrence Victor Harrison. Um, what else do they have as empirical facts? Two former... U.S. agents knowledgeable about the Buendia and Camarena homicides. One CIA, Harrison, the other DEA, Hector Breas, has stated that both Buendia and Camarena were killed to keep them from exposing American collusion with Mexican drug traffickers in support of the, the Contra war against the Sandinista government. This is where we need to talk about empirical facts. Remember, they say at the beginning... We're citing empirical facts, and yes, it is a fact. It is a fact that Harrison, at least in part, and for sure, Agent Boreas said, yep, this is why Camarena was killed. That doesn't, That's not a fact. That's not a fact that proves that that is the reason why Camarena was killed. The only fact that you can gain from that is that that's what Harrison and Berea say. Without more, their statement is just as good as mine saying, I was on the grass, you know, in November of 1963. Okay, maybe not quite that much. But the mere fact that somebody says something doesn't make it a fact. It's a fact they said it, but not a fact of the point being made. I've asked over and over and over rhetorically as we've gone through the evidence, show me something contemporaneous. Easy for you to say, Jack. Show me a piece of paper where Cameron is talking about the CIA. doesn't exist. We can go to the next one. Um, Former DEA agent Hector Boreas has stated that Camarena traced Guadalajara drug money to U.S. and offshore CIA bank accounts. That Camarena was interrogated under torture to learn who his sources were. And that he was killed to prevent him from revealing what he discovered. Boreas also stated that Camarena had been in contact with Manuel Buendia. Once again, that says nothing. Great, Breas said it. So what? That is not an empirical fact. An empirical fact would be here's a document that Camarena wrote in 1984 or 1985 that says, hey, here's this connection. That would be an empirical fact. The fact that Boreas says it years after the fact, with no support, is not a fact. And the Bartleys and Eclipse of the Assassins The internet trolls on Reddit and other places. Hector Boreas in his book and Tilla Russell and Amazon Prime in the docuseries should stop purporting that statements, unsupported statements in and of themselves are facts. They're not and they can't be and they should not be looked at that way. And the same is true with Godoy and Lopez. Let's think about this for a second. We've talked in the past about Lopez Romero saying that he was involved in the actual abduction of Agent now, okay? that he was outside the American consulate helped to put Camarena into the Atlantic car and drive to Lope de Vega. Got a lot to say about that in an upcoming episode. A lot. I've got measurements. I got video. (laughs) We're going to talk about that whole scenario. Hey, what if I told you That there is now significant reason to believe based on the testimony or the statements of someone else who may have participated in the kidnapping. What if there's reason to believe that Lopez Romero was never there? And part of the reason that the story changes every single time it's told is because he wasn't there because he doesn't know. Would that mean that his that he never said he never made the statement? He never averred that he was, in fact, someone who participated in the kidnapping. No, it just means that his statement wasn't true. That's the difference. It's not enough to say, as we've talked about, Hector does it. Amazon Prime did it. Reporters have done it. Well, Hector's witnesses say it, so it's got to be true. No, it doesn't have to be true. If you're going to make outrageous claims, you better have outrageous proof, and the proof cannot simply be Godoy and Lopez saying it. Uh, I, I was was thinking about this the other day, trying to think of how how else to to direct this, and I started thinking about. Amazon Prime, Taylor Russell. Those that worked behind the scenes to put together the document drama, docu series, whatever you want to call it, the Last Narc. And we've talked in the past that uh, you know I, I think in a lot of respects the, the the technical portion of it is is well done some elements of it I I don't like. I don't like the the scenes in the uh in the cemetery. I think some of it's overdone. I don't like listening to to Hector, but that's just my own personal feelings. Um I don't like the fact that I think Mrs. Camarino was manipulated in in the whole process. But more importantly, I started thinking about fairness. And fairness in the application of facts. And what strikes me is throughout the last NARC, four episodes, four hours, more or less, right? Everything is presented as a fact. There's never a question. There's never a rebuttal. There's nothing. And so I started looking To see if that's kind of how it's supposed to work. And I found some journalistic guidelines from PBS. And it talks about documentaries in particular, you know, programs that are documentary in nature. Um, And it talks about fairness Here's some of the things it says. The pursuit or in the pursuit of truthful information, the producer must be sensitive to issues of fairness if the program is to have credibility. Truth is an elusive combination of fact and opinion, of reason and experience. We ask for the viewer's trust. In turn, we promise that the subject matter And the people in the program will be treated fairly. Appearance of intent to be fair is a strength, not a weakness. If the intent is seen to be fair, whatever the message the program carries will be reinforced. So it then lists out a number of things um, that a producer should do in the interest of fairness. And amongst those, approach stories with an open, skeptical mind and a de- determination through extensive research to acquaint themselves with a wide range of viewpoints. Exercise care in checking the accuracy and credibility of all information they receive, especially as it may relate to accusations of wrongdoing. Give individuals or entities who are the subject of attack the opportunity to respond to those attacks. Inform interview subjects of the general areas of investigation and questioning in advance. Try to prevent the significant facts a viewer to would need to understand what he or she is seeing always be prepared to assist in creating or or in correcting errors. And then two things that are super important with respect to the last narc. When there are conflicting viewpoints or opinions on subjects treated within a journalistic program, Fairness does not require that equal time be accorded to conflicting opinions. However, it does require the acknowledgement and responsible statement of those conflicting opinions. In matters of fairness, there is one specific requirement. All producers must have a fact-checking procedure at the completion of the program. Producers should be prepared to show and cite their sourcing or sources in a fact-checking document or annotated script. I ask you, any of these things, did any of this happen with respect to the last NARC? Is there any evidence? Is there anything presented, anything at all, that presents any alternative viewpoint? Is there Anything presented in the last NARC that would lead the average viewer to believe that reasonable people could differ, that there are those who are knowledgeable who would say, no, Felix Rodriguez was not at Lope de Vega. No, the CIA was not involved in Agent Cameron's abduction. no. The CIA was not involved in the interrogation of Agent Camarena. No, Jaime Kirkendall did not take money from the cartel. Is there anything in there that suggests that anything but what's being said is a fact? And yes, that's a rhetorical question because we all know what the answer is. I started this off by saying we live in a strange time where facts aren't facts. I, I hate, hate, abhor um the the phrase fake news. But the fact of the matter is, and I use the word fact, that but the truth is everybody tries To say that their version of events is the fact. Their viewpoint is the fact. And if we're going to look at cases like Agent Cameron's. If we're going to evaluate the outrageous claims of the Bartlett's. Of Hector Breyes, Of Tola Russell and Amazon Prime. Then we can't rely on the counterintuitive definition of facts. We have to rely on real facts and real fairness and real credibility. And that, I submit to you, is where all of the people involved in making the claims against Felix Rodriguez, against the CIA, against Jaime Kirkendall, have absolutely failed and let you down. They don't rely on facts. They rely on statements. Huge difference. Okay. I hope that rant meant something to somebody. Um, Where do we go from here? The next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about a couple of things. First of all, we've got a lawyer who is going to come on and talk about extradition. So we understand the concept of and procedure for extradition from Mexico. That's coming up. We're going to talk a lot more about um, the kidnapping scenarios. We're going to go back through lopez romero's various statements and the timing and the measurements uh as i said when i was in guadalajara the last time i measured precisely how far things were away we traveled directly from the camelot to lope de vega and timed it timed it again and timed it again so we're going to talk about those sorts of things again if people have comments, suggestions, things they want to hear about, please let me know. Look for the newsletter uh, to start coming out soon. Um, You can sign up for it simply by leaving your email on my website, uh, www.jacklewellen.com. Don't forget about my book, Someone Had to Die, Jaime Kirkendall's book, uh, a great resource if you're interested. And again, Thanks, everybody, for making the first 25 episodes so much fun and so interesting for me and hopefully for you. And I will see you or talk to you next week for episode 26. Have a great week.